Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So you know me as the host of Fascinating Nouns, but I also created it, and I did so with, with the goal of making a show that, uh, that utilized my strengths so that it is as entertaining for you to listen to as it is fun t- for me to perform. And there's one man who I think really encapsulates that philosophy, and that's Monty Hall, who created Let's Make a Deal, kind of in his own image. He really was able to utilize his strengths in such a way that that show is really an extension of his body and his mind in some ways, which made it the most popular game show of all time. So I wanted to learn more about this, What better way to do that than to talk to another expert, the world's leading expert, as a matter of fact, in game show history, and that's Adam Neediff, who just finished a book on Monty Hall. So I'm hoping he and I can get together, I can learn some stories and take a few pointers from the greatest guy, uh, the greatest host to ever do it. So let's get right into this. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, The first thing I have to tell you, though, is I I have to to apologize to you. Mm -hmm. For some reason, when I see your name, uh, obviously, it's Adam Nedif. I'm saying that correctly. No, Nedif. Long E. Nedif. Long E. Long, okay. Nedif. So I've been. I, I'm totally off on this. As I would always. I think of you as Adam Nedhoff, and that's because <laughs> I had a teacher in, in high school named Mrs. Nyhoff, which is. I don't, so every time I see your name, I always think of that. Uh, she's a wonderful lady. So don't, so don't take it as an insult. <laughs> but she was. Uh, yeah, she was. Honestly, I, I, I don't think. That. I don't think most of my coworkers know how my name is pronounced. Because really, it, it, like, it's funny how we'll be months into production on a show and somebody will suddenly say <laughs> Nedef and I'll oh, we've been working together this whole time. It's never come up. <laughs> so and it's N-E-D-E-F-F and it's pronounced again native. Nedef. Nedef. That's so f- neat. Nedef. Knee. Def. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Knee Def. I like that. That's great. Uh, well, this is this is exciting for me because it's been a while since you've been on, which is unfortunate because yeah. rarely do I have someone on the show who has as much passion for 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 something as you do. And that's game shows. Yeah. I've never met anyone who is so into game shows in my entire life. And I think you you have a bunch of buddies who are also into it. So there's like, it's like a pack of you guys. There's like yeah. four of you who might be the most passionate game show enthusiasts in the city of LA. And that's really saying something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny how a lot of things have changed, but a lot of things have stayed the same um, because at the time we're recording this last weekend, there was a gamers convention in Los Angeles and we spent the weekend at this hotel uh, doing game show recreations. We did live mm-hmm. productions of uh, Wheel of Fortune with a, an actual wheel, which I now have in my living room. Uh, <laughs> I'm the only apartment in Glendale, California, with a wheel in the living room. Uh, I, we did card charts. We did uh, blockbusters and family feud and this has just been what we've been doing for years and years and years so that part of my life hasn't changed at the same time i'm trying to think of where i was 10 years ago 10 years ago i was working a day job and night job to stay above water while i was getting my first book out 
And now at the time that we're doing this interview, I have my 10th book out with more books in the pipeline after that that I've committed to. Holy uh, cow. And, and just being able to go from two jobs to stay above water to being knee deep in the game show business and working in the production <laughs> end of it. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, I, it's, so in a lot of ways, the same person that you talked to 10 years ago, but in a lot of ways feeling like things are just completely different now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like that other person doesn't exist. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I you know, I, I like to do shameless plugs on this show, so I think you should go back and watch our interview uh, about Bill Cullen, and it, it, that was a very a long, long time ago. And those game conventions, I used to go to them before I became such a wuss about COVID, <laughs> and that's how we met. And I, I've watched your company, uh, which I think is Game it's, Home uh, it's, it's Hands on Buzzers. We, we changed the name of it because we found out that having a pun in the name of your business isn't a great idea because you have to explain the spelling of it. Yeah, and right. we figured out about half of what we do involves the phrase Hands on Buzzers, so we changed the name of, uh, to that. But it's hands on buzzers. It's just a small business. We've never it's never been anything we've been able to make a living off of. And I don't say yeah. that as plain. It's just we've never been able to make a living off of it. But yeah. we go to private parties and we go to corporate functions and we go to conventions and we stage live productions of game shows and we'll do custom made material like we'll do Wheel of Fortune where the answers of the puzzles are the birthday boy's interests or we'll <laughs> do family feud with holiday themed material or things like that. Um, we started doing that up. About 13 years ago, and we're still going. Uh, we have uh, gigs often enough to make it worth keep trying and keep doing. Um, but uh, some of us have gotten into the game show business. Um, Travis, for example, who I believe you met at that time, is now very much working in the real world version of what he was doing for funsies before. Travis is now working for Television City Electronics, which is the oh, firm wow. that designs the electronic components and the graphics for most of the game shows that you see on television. Wow. Uh, and uh, I've started working as a fact checker, a researcher for game show trivia questions. And mm -hmm. uh, Tim, who you met at that time, has uh, yep. also started doing that. So uh, a lot of things have advanced in those uh, few years. Yeah, it's I love to see it. I, I'm so happy you guys have so much success because I always wanted that for you because anyone who's that passionate about something should be allowed to do it. You know, I mean, that's not something. And in this industry, people don't often give opportunities to those who are most deserving. Yeah. And I always thought you guys were the most deserving. And your company, I've been involved in those reproductions and they're a lot of fun. Thank you. They're, they are a lot of fun. Yeah. So I, 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 it's unfortunate you guys haven't made a living at it, but I, I feel like you guys are half a click away, yeah. uh, you know, from, from making that happen. You know, a half a click on the price is right is the difference between five cents and a dollar. <laughs> you know that. Exactly. Uh, yes. So, you know, and you know you're right there. For knowing the order of the spaces on the price is right. <laughs> you think I don't know? Number. <laughs> so it got me through college, man. You yeah. think I don't know about the price is right. Uh, well, so, and you are a member of the two timer club. And I know this 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 interview means you've been on the show two times. That is also you're in rare company, my friend, well, uh, and, and and great company. So welcome to that particular that particular club. So let, let's talk about this. You know, we talked about Bill Cullen before. Yeah, we're going to talk about Monty Hall uh -huh. uh, in this episode. Uh, but, you know, you just mentioned. Oh, and there's the book. Uh, TV's big dealer. 
um, yep. which we will tell people how to get a hold of later on. But that's the book. Uh, this is a very interesting book. But before we get into that, we're teasing a lot here. Yeah. You know, it's almost like a talk show. We're just teasing the future. Uh, but you mentioned you got hired as a researcher. You're working on split second. Yes. If my research serves, if my research serves correctly. Yes. Uh, that was a former. That was a former Monty Hall game. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, as of the day that we're recording this, we just wrapped the season two days ago. Um, okay. We just did our first season at 65 episodes of we hope many more to come for Game Show Network with uh, John Michael Higgins at the helm. Um, John Michael Higgins, who's a fantastic talent, who everybody knows from a different thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he's, he's one of those actors that you've definitely seen in something. Yep, um, right. I, I'll, uh, to me, he'll always be David Letterman in the late shift TV movie. Um, <laughs> but, and uh, to my roommate, he's Elaine's bald boyfriend on Seinfeld. Um, but... <laughs> We taped 65 episodes, uh, wow. and it was a great amount of fun working on it because I enjoy the people that I'm working with. Um, you're kind of a nomad when you work in the game show business. Uh, you're contracted mm -hmm. to work on a show for 9 to 12 weeks, and then you finish taping 13 weeks of that show, and everybody from the top to bottom is let go, and you're adrift, and you move on to find other jobs. But right. as everybody knows everybody, eventually your phone rings, and it's a job offer that came from somebody that you've worked with in the past recommending you. Right. Um, so you work with people, you don't work with people, and then you end up crossing paths with them again. So I've enjoyed working with the people that I enjoyed working with on this show. Uh, and um, – it's really neat. Like you just said, uh, this is a revival of a past game show. Uh, this was originally a show uh, from Stefan Hados, Monty Hall Productions, Monty Hall's production mm -hmm. company in the 1970s. It was hosted by Tom Kennedy, who's one of the all time greats. And mm -hmm. then there was a revival in the 1980s that Monty himself hosted. And the revival is probably the better known version because of ubiquitous cable reruns in the years that followed. Right. Um, <laughs> but right. Yeah, so it's really neat. This is the second time that I've had a chance to work on a game show that I grew up watching. I worked on Double Dare in the, uh, oh, a few cool. years back, and now I'm working on Split Second. So it's just it's going back and checking off all these boxes from childhood of things. That, <laughs> right. Yeah, of things yeah. that would have been cool to work on. And hey, now I've gotten a chance to work on them. Yeah, I mean, that to me has got to be a really and not only an exciting feeling, but I mean, just that you accomplished that. I mean, that that is a, a great sense of pride. I imagine that you have in being able to work a career that you got to do exactly what you wanted to do. Not everyone gets that luxury. Quite a bit. And the, the crazy thing is, that's the entire reason I began writing the books. Uh, hmm. Getting into the game show business is not the easiest thing in the world to start with, um, but I was hoping to get my name out there by writing these books because a lot of the people who do work in game shows are passionate about them like I am. Um, yeah. So I was just hoping to get myself on the radar by writing these books, and happily, my books fell into the laps of the right people, and that's how I ended up getting these jobs was people knew me from the work that I had done in that field. And what's funny so it is, worked. Yeah, it, it absolutely worked. But wow. The funny thing is the demand kept coming for books. So I keep getting uh, these offers, <laughs> keep getting these requests to write books on different subjects. Yeah. So uh, I'm just going <laughs> to I did all of this so I could get out of working two jobs and I'm right back to where I started. I fundamentally have three jobs now between yeah. uh, between this, uh, the museum, which we haven't talked about yet, but I'm sure we will. And yeah. uh, it, it, doing the fact checking for game shows. So it, it, jokes on me. <laughs> well, I mean, these three jobs 
are more like real jobs that pay a lot of money instead of piecing <laughs> together jobs to stay afloat. Right. So it's a little it's a little different. Yeah. You know, and there are also things you want to do. Absolutely. Yeah. So, well, so yeah, let, let's talk about the um, let's talk about the museum really quickly mm-hmm. before before we get too far along. And I forget. So what what do you do there and and how uh, how do you uh, kind of brought that to life? Sure. OK, so this is uh, what we're talking about is the National Archives of Game Show History at the Strong wow. Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Uh, okay. And this happened right at the beginning of the pandemic. There is a museum uh, in Rochester, New York. The name again is the Strong Museum of Play. If you are in upstate New York for any reason, carve out a day to go to this museum. It's about the size of three city blocks. And it's a museum dedicated to the history of play and all forms of that word. So there's an exhibit about fairy tales. There's an exhibit about uh, the history of video games. There's an exhibit about the history of action figures, history of uh, board games, da 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 da. Uh, they, have, <laughs> they have three arcades in this building, uh, a pinball arcade and two video arcades. Wow. Uh, and so you just wander through this museum looking at the history of play and actually getting to play the stuff. Uh, one of the neater exhibits for little, little kids when you were like three or four, if you remember playing store, they've actually set up a supermarket with wow. little kid sized shelves and That's boxes amazing. and containers and little kid size. So you can come to this thing and not just play store as a little kid, but play almost Walmart. Um, but <laughs> play, play Costco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's what the museum is. It's this very broad, very expansive thing. It's bigger than I was picturing when I first heard about it because I had a chance to visit sure. the holidays and it was amazing to go on a walk through Sesame street. They have a history of the, the toys and merchandise that have been released through Sesame street and oh, they wow. have built the set of Sesame street in this museum. So you get to see that big apartment building and you look up and there's big bird, actual big bird, waving at you. Uh, the show donated it. Um, wow. <laughs> so it's this really neat thing. And a guy named Howard Blumenthal was touring it uh, a few years ago. And he walked up to one of the people who ran the museum and he said, so do you have anything in here about the history of game shows? And person from the strong said, well, no, actually, that's an area that we've always wanted to get into. But the problem is we don't have any contacts work in the game show business. Right. And Howard sticks his hand out and introduces himself. Howard was the guy who <laughs> uh, remote control for MTV uh, for the kids of the 90s. He was the creator of Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego for public television. Oh, wow. That's great. And uh, his father was the puzzle designer for the original concentration. His father was the producer of the show, and he designed all the Rebus puzzles that were hidden behind the pieces of the game board. Unbelievable. So uh, that was Howard and Howard roped in another gentleman who's very critical to a project like this, Bob Bowden. Uh-huh. Um, Bob Bowden is the guy who loves game shows more than any of us. Uh, Bob got into the game show business in the 1980s uh, on an executive level at CBS and he has just been involved in game shows one way or the other since then um, and has had an extraordinary career. Uh, what's funny, wow. he's had such a great career. Uh, I, I tell him uh, I talk about him with my roommate sometimes and my roommate finally had a chance to to see him. And she told me later she was a little surprised when she saw Bob because she said, he's really young. And I said, yeah. And she she goes, I've been picturing a guy in like his upper 90s whenever you talk about him because you keep telling me different things that he's done in the past. And yeah, yeah, Bob has had an extraordinary career. But the thing is, he got started when he was really, really young. So he's this relatively young guy who's had 
just a 100 year career in the game show business. Um, but one of the other great things about Bob is, in addition to working in the game show business, he yeah. is an avid collector of stuff from game okay. shows. And by okay. stuff, I mean he would salvage things from dumpsters or stop things from making it into the dumpster and just load it into the backseat of his car and take it home. So when you go into Bob's house, you notice when you look to your right, the giant J from the old Jeopardy set. And then a little further down the road is one of the old decommissioned pricing games from the Price is Right that they stopped using in 1986. And then when you turn around, it's one of the uh, one of the desks from the from the set of Hollywood Squares no longer in use. And you're just looking around and you're seeing all of these little pieces of sets of canceled game shows. Uh, He takes (laughs) he basically takes a piece of the set from everything he's ever had any connection to. uh, And people give him stuff, gifts and that's into its own collection but his own his office at his house is fundamentally a museum of game shows so those got involved and bob was uh my boss on a show that i worked on a few years ago called funny you should ask and got to know each other pretty well because of game show fandom and bob owned my books before i ever worked for him um so the discussion came up well we need somebody who can research and uh who can figure out what things are for archiving purposes and Mm -hmm. that I know the guy. Uh, So I got the call in May 2020, uh, which is, you know, two months into a pandemic, you get this call. Hey, I know the entire world is shut down, but just so you know, we're getting ready for something really big and really special on the other side of this. Um, But uh, telling me that there's a museum of game shows in development or a museum wing of game shows in development. Mm -hmm. And so we're currently in the process of raising funds for that uh, to get the actual wing built. Uh, Meantime, there is one exhibit that we have on display. Betty White's estate donated the Emmy that she won for hosting a game show in 1983 called Just Men, the first woman to win the game (laughs) show hosting Emmy. Uh, Uh, Strong Museum has that. More Emmys than Monty Hall won, by the way, which we'll also get to. That's right, yeah. And (laughs) – We've also got uh, the Strong Museum has this amazing warehouse, and they took me on a tour of just their warehouse, which is an incredible facility just in itself. Mm-hmm. But it's all these different things that have been donated to the museum since they announced it was coming into existence. And you walk through this warehouse, and you're seeing the original 1976 set of Family Feud, and you look over, and there's more pricing games from The Price is Right. And you just – it's amazing what we have sitting and waiting for the day that this opens up and we can finally show it to people. Um but uh, yeah, if you're uh, if you get a chance to uh, make a donation again, that's called the Strong Museum of Play, and we're talking about a donation in terms of money to get this thing built or donation of stuff. Uh, if you happen to have any kind of game show stuff lying around, and I mean anything, uh, we're gonna take it. Uh, when it first got announced, uh, one of my favorite thing, and I I just liked it for the presence of mind to do this and for what the Mm -hmm. thing is um a contestant who won twenty thousand dollars on the twenty thousand dollar pyramid in the 1970s Mm -hmm. uh called up the museum and said hey um i asked the show if i could keep the category cards from the winner circle as a souvenir of being on the show and winning and they said yeah go ahead and take it with you and he said had those for about 45 years now do you want them (laughs) so yeah so we're getting away we get stuff like that and that's it's fun to have something where people want to share what they have and have it preserved for all time. 
and right. just gradually learning what people have had sitting around that they're eager to get rid of. Um, Bob actually had the best quote on this uh, very early on in the proceedings when we were talking about how are we going to get stuff for this? How are we going to get museum exhibits and donations? And mm-hmm. Bob said the one thing that everybody who's ever worked in game shows in Los Angeles has in common is we all have wives who have been begging us to clean out our basements for the last 30 years. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we've heard that from a few people like, oh, man, my wife is going to be so happy you called about this because she's been wanting me to throw that stuff away. And it's <clears throat> yeah, and that's the other thing we have to we have to trump it out to the world is please do not throw anything away. Please let us know what you have first. Um, well, I'm looking around you and yeah. and behind you yeah. is probably stuff that I'm guessing 90 percent is someone something someone threw out uh, <laughs> if I if I had to guess because my grandma look behind your your right shoulder all those password games my grandma yeah. had uh, one of the old passwords they put out a new edition every year which was which was kind of amazing so I'm board games games are really your thing and I mean I hopefully people in the audience can hear the passion behind it and you need someone with that level of passion to do that kind of work not only with the museum but also in the books that you're writing right so this oh, particular yeah. book we're talking about Monty Hall this you know it's it's let's make a deal and Monty Hall are kind of inextricably linked uh, they're they're you know Monty Hall wanted to do other stuff and didn't quite pan out let's make a deal has found success with Wayne Brady, but it took a long time for them to find a host that kind of fit the bill. But he is such an interesting guy. And you had a very strange task with this book, which was Monty Hall had written his book already, his autobiography. Uh, He wrote it with another gentleman. And that came out in 1974, I believe, when Monty Hall was in his 50s and at the peak of his career. And the book kind of just ends. Yeah. With, you know, him being, in you know, him wanting to do other stuff and being unhappy and kind of over, let's make a deal. And it's at the height of its popularity. Yeah. Then, you know, what, 50 years later, you're brought on to basically finish the life story of Monty Hall, who then he went on to go, you know, and have a, a career as, as a as a philanthropist. He continued doing let's make a deal. It never went away. He continued to make other game shows. And you have to pick up basically from the day after that book ends. Yeah. And write it in, in a similar style. Uh, that that is a very strange task to to I think uh, to, uh, to it's to undertake you know I mean that's difficult to do I believe yeah and it was actually uh, again uh, Bob Bowden who made the suggestion that I write this book and write the updated form of it okay um, the book was written originally by and this is the reason there are three authors listed on this thing even though it was fundamentally my endeavor for the last uh, four years but um, the book was originally released. Uh, and written by Monty with the help of an author named Bill Libby. And Monty was never really happy with the book. First of all, it got very heavily condensed in editing. Uh, The manuscript that they turned into the publisher at the time was 800 pages. And the original book, when it was released, was something like 250 pages. So the publisher shrunk it down quite a bit. Um, And I want to pause you right there for a second. So that, that abridged version... I think is what is in your the book that you have, yeah, because so, that's the one I read. Yeah, so here's right? the next step that I took. Yeah. Um, it turned out that the copyright to the book was not held by the publisher. I did some research, and okay. it turned out that the copyright for the book was held by Monty and held by Bill Libby, which meant that okay. permission to write the book was now in the hands of their children. So I reached out to Monty's children, which Bob made possible. I reached out to Bill Libby's children. All of them signed off on it in exchange for a cut of the royalties, which is fair. Um, 
So I took the manuscript because I realized you know, if I start this book from scratch, I'm going to be cribbing a lot from this book anyway, like right. pretty much to the point of copying entire pages. And it just made more sense to take the book that was already out and build on it. Right. Uh, so that's what I did. Um, the other thing, I don't want to say that Monty regretted writing the autobiography, but uh, one of the things his children touched on is – the book captures Monty at a very specific point in his life because there were multiple chapters in it dedicated mm-hmm. to the fact that Monty is desperately trying to do something else with his career. Right. Uh, right the yeah. book for, there's an entire chapter dedicated to Monty trying to get a song and dance show off the ground in Las Vegas. He's trying to do the Monty Hall show yeah. for 90 minutes a night on a stage right. in Las Vegas. And that didn't really take off. And the book leaves you with the perception that Monty was kind of growing to hate. Let's make a deal. And his Mm -hmm. children and his brother who's still alive and sharp as attack and had some great Mm -hmm. memories to share and some great insights to offer. The thing that they kept hammering home is no, that book did not present him accurately, even though it was his own autobiography. No, Mm -hmm. he didn't hate. Let's make a deal. It's just the way that I think it, it, it was his brother that put it was Monty loved Let's Make a Deal, but he didn't love it so much that he wanted it to be the only thing that he was known for. Uh, Monty wanted to try other things in life. What was funny about building onto his biography and reading up on projects that he did afterwards, um, Mm -hmm. Monty did get opportunities. Monty began doing uh, touring productions in summer stock and acting in theatrical shows. And he did a made-for-TV movie, and it was his first chance to really do something along the lines of being a film actor. And Monty got these other opportunities and Monty came away from it going, wow, I really hate this. And this is not (laughs) unique to Monty. This happens a lot because I've heard I've heard Merv Griffin talk about this. I've heard Johnny Carson talk about it on these lines. And David Letterman said the same thing. And basically what happens is when you're one of these old school broadcasters who is brought up in you do it in one take and you do it live and then the show's over. So you have one hour of entertaining to do. The show starts when that clock hits 12 and do one hour (laughs) and then you're done. Yeah. Well, for better, for worse, whatever happens, happens. Right. That's that's it. Yeah. Trained to do that for your entire life. Doing a play or doing a movie is the most aggravating thing ever because you act out your scene (laughs) and then they move the camera and you act out your scene again and then they move the camera again and you act out your scene again. And you're just thinking, okay, we've done this. We've done this. We're done. Right. Uh, so that's the funny thing is a lot of broadcasters try to go into film acting or theatrical acting and they wind up not liking it as much as they expected to because it goes against mm-hmm. everything that they were ever trained for. Uh, right. And that's pretty much what happened to Monty. So Monty dove back into Let's Make a Deal after the uh, one. Well, now, I, want, I don't want to get too far ahead. Right. I don't want to get too far ahead here because yeah. that's kind of because we're kind of preempting the end of the story, yeah. which is what's interesting is where Monty ended up. But I want to talk about the beginning because I think there are probably people watching this who have no idea who Monty Hall is sure. or what Let's Make a Deal is, because even though in the 70s and even in the 80s, this was the show. I mean, one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time, Go, uh, they mentioned Monty Hall. You know, someone says, someone's trying to make a deal and they say, hey, what are you, Monty Hall? Yeah. And people even in the 90s were aware of it, but it still felt obscure then. So I think that Monty Hall is a very talented game show host, but the show itself, I think, was really what captured the attention of the world, because I think that and The Price is Right might be the best game shows of all time. But I think Let's Make a Deal is a little more difficult 
I think it's easy to explain, but the concept I think might be difficult for people hearing it. In the book, you do a really great job of taking these complex ideas like the Monty Hall uh, problem, which we'll talk about later, and making it understandable to the average listener. So tell me, how would you describe Let's Make a Deal to someone who's never heard of it before? Let's Make a Deal was a show where Marty Hall would walk onto what was called the trading floor, where 32 members of a studio audience had been selected in advance by the show's writers to come down and sit on the trading floor for a chance to make deals with Marty. And Monty would make a series of deals uh, with different people on the floor. Uh, giving them things, but then offering to give them something else if they would return the thing that he just gave them. So, mm, you know, for right. example, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. for example, he has a safe uh, or a lockbox. Monty has a lockbox containing $1,000. And here's a choice of three keys. I'm going to give you one of those keys. Now, one of them opens up the lockbox. OK, so mm -hmm. contestant picks one of the keys. OK, we'll go ahead and open this up. But first, over on the floor, there is a giant gift box, and it's hiding something. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that is, but you can go ahead and give that key back to me. Forget about this right. $1,000 in the lockbox. You can have what's underneath that box on the floor and right. just take that home and call this off. And now the suspense of the show is, well, we don't know what's in that box, but if she has a key that doesn't open that, she's going to regret it. And maybe this is a really nice thing that she's got uh, going for her. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Or there are other uh, – it's a variety of things, and it's – again, this is one of the tricky things about explaining a game show or explaining uh, in particular Let's Make a Deal is it sounds so abstract when you try to put it into words, and you really right. do need a few pages to explain. Um, uh, Mark Goodson, who was uh, a rival producer, uh, said this, and he didn't even say this as a criticism. He was saying this in, in – a very glowing review and speaking in admiration of Monty, but he said, let's make a deal is 30 minutes of flipping a coin. And mm -hmm, yeah, right. that's pretty much what yeah. the show is. It is 30 minutes of that's Monty right. saying, do you want this or that? And the contestants just having to make decisions based largely on information that they don't have. They don't know what's inside mm -hmm. this box. They don't know what's behind that curtain. They know right. what this is, but they don't know what this is. And they have to make some kind of decision based on that. But there are all <laughs> kinds of ways yeah. of dressing that up. Uh, there's another one that just sounds completely ridiculous, which is Monty hands out three eggs. And if this is a hard boiled egg, you're going to win money. But if it's a raw egg, you're not going to win anything. And now we have this big suspenseful moment where they bring out a bowl and Monty cracks the eggs. And mm -hmm. it's just ridiculous to see excitement and drama and thrill building up over can Monty crack this egg? Right. And that's yeah, that's five minutes of television right there. He makes something out of it. <laughs> well, um, I will tell you what, what's what's amazing about the show is they really took FOMO, like the fear of missing out and encapsulated it into a game show. And the pomp and circumstance around just the simple question of I will give you something for nothing. It's house money. Do you want to keep that house money or do you want to risk it for something else? Yeah. And that and you know, we forgot to mention there are what's called zonks on the show, mm -hmm. which are complete joke prizes. So what's behind door number one could be it could be a camel 
or it could be a brand new kitchen set with a refrigerator stove, you yeah. know, you know, worth worth three times what he just gave you. Yeah. And I remember there was this funny quote. I was watching a couple episodes to prepare for this interview. And there was this great moment where this, you know, it's, it's always husband and wives. I mean, it was very middle America. But there's this woman who's just won a thousand dollars. And in 1974, that was a lot of money. A car was six thousand dollars. Right. Yeah. So you're one sixth of a car, a thousand dollars. And she gives him the thousand dollars back to pick a curtain while the husband's like, no, don't do that. And Monty Hall says, I bet you just argued with the milkman over seven cents last week. And here you are giving me a thousand dollars to for, for nothing. You don't know what's behind door number one. That is the show in my mind. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, just all of a sudden something happens when people are on TV and they take risks that they would never take in their lives. <laughs> right. And that was kind of the magic of it is just the complete disbelief. Like you're being handed a thousand dollars. How are you just, how are you giving that back? How are you passing that up? Um, but, but the funny thing is if they did, if they did just keep the money at him, yeah. that wouldn't have been a show. Yeah. Right. Like if he just was like, here's a thousand dollars. Like, yeah, well, of course I'll take the thousand dollars. It's ridiculous to go and go up. Cause I don't know any information behind what's that. Well, the, interesting, the other interesting thing about Let's Make a Deal is Let's Make a Deal depended on a relationship between the contestant and host that was very different from the yeah. relationship that they usually have. The host right. is usually this very warm, friendly, caring personality who wants the contestants to do well and is really pulling for them. Mm-hmm. And on Let's Make a Deal, kind of the the crux of all the deals is the contestants looking at Monty and thinking, can I trust him? There is a very <laughs> there is yeah. a very yeah, tense yeah, yeah, moment yeah. Uh, in one of the episodes that I watched while studying for this. And it's uh, a clip that's been shown uh, in a lot of highlight reels of Let's Make a Deal. But it's this very nervous, jittery contestant who has a chance to take the curtain. And Monty says, OK, I'll tell you what. Instead of that curtain, I'll buy, I'll buy a back room for 350. Uh, no, 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 I'll, I'll take it. And he goes, OK, 400, 450, 500, 550, 600, 650. And you see the woman like just like starting to lose it. And you can see her starting to crack as the money gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. she's because what's getting into her head now is, wow, he does not want me to have what's behind that curtain. And she's right. trying to figure out, should I just take the short thing? But it, like if he's giving me this much money, there must be something good back there. And right. that kind of led to Mahdi being this master of psychology. Here's the the great thing yeah. about Mahdi running this show was Mahdi was the co-creator of Let's Make a Deal in addition to being the host of it, which meant he was his own mm-hmm. boss. So right. Monty could kind of call audibles and go on his own and do whatever he wanted for deals every now and then. And he would do that if he got a sense mm-hmm. that a contestant, mm, you know, this contestant is going to crack early. So I'm just going to offer her two hundred dollars. But, you know, this contestant, I will bet you that this that this contestant is going to pick the curtain no matter what I do. Mm-hmm. And it was a great way of, in a way, kind of managing the budget. Monty would offer if he got a feeling about a contestant, he would offer them. I'll give you two thousand dollars if you don't take that curtain. And yeah. he would just throw out this big amount of money because he knew I'm not going to have to pay this off. She's going to take the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, his his psychology, it was great. And I think there is this kind of. There's a lot of there is a weird sense of psychology that goes into watching a game show because the whole point is we at home want to play along as well. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, you know, oh, do that. You know, don't do that. Of course, don't you know, take the money. We, we want to play along as well. And we see these little things that happen. I was just, again in this episode I was watching last night. Basically, 
there was a line of prizes and there were six prizes and they were all the same. They were all the same price except for one. But obviously we don't know what they are. And you have to get the, this woman had to guess which one was not like the other, which one was the most. So she picks the one thing. Right. So, of course, he starts going down and starts revealing, oh, this is 69 cents. This is 69 cents. This is 69 cents. So now we've seen three of them that are the same price and there's three that aren't. Right. But then he skips over one of the prizes and goes with the prize that's in the middle. Now, as from psychology, I would think, well, if he really wanted to build suspense, he would have gone with the next prize in the list, number four, and then just left the two right next to each other. But then my mind thinks, well, if he skipped over it, that must be the one that's more expensive, which means that this woman has picked incorrectly. Mm -hmm. I think the husband sniffed this out and told her to keep the money convincing her to do that, which she did. And it turns out that's correct. He had skipped over the one that was more money. (laughs) And I feel like if you watch the show a lot and you understand what's going on, you can pick up on these little idiosyncrasies. So if you're in the audience, these guys were all fans. Everyone in the audience was a fan. We didn't even get to the costumes yet. That's how excited these people were. They were dressing costumes to get picked. They knew what was going on. I feel like there's a way more psychology at play than it's just this simple goofy game show, which is how everyone painted it in the news and everything. Well, yeah. And it's it really does become immersive and it does become right. this. What would I do if I were in those shoes? Because in the deal that you're describing and this happens every time the deal starts with, OK, all of these grocery items are 69 cents except one. Pick the one that's not. And 100 percent guarantee no matter what grocery item she picks, half of the studio audience will go. Oh, right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And it's also funny because there was another moment. It was since we're talking about psychology, uh, you know, you and I have our psych. We, we got psych degrees. We can do this. This is perfectly fine. Uh, but there was one moment where uh, Monty Hall was asking this woman to pick a number and it was somehow correlated to the amount of money he would give her. I forget what it was, like an envelope or something. And you just hear this one voice in the audience yell four. And immediately the woman says four. And Monty Hall picks up on that. He's like, all someone has to do is yell one number out in the audience. And then, (laughs) but psychologically you hear that and you're like, oh, it must be four. There's all these weird little things going on in that, especially when you have audience participation, you've got the pressure of the cameras, you've got Monty Hall throwing money out left and right. There's so much going on that I think if you're a contestant on that show, it is overwhelming to the senses on how to respond. Yeah. And that was another piece of the success of the show. Uh, Hmm. The warm-up man uh, for the 1990 version, Phil Moore, picked up on this and gave a great example. You're talking about Monty reacting to the woman yelling out for and the contestant uh, going for it. Um, Monty was very aware of everything that was being said in that studio, and he would build on that. And uh, Phil was talking about, you know, watching an episode and – the contestant said something at the very beginning of the game about his car, and he kind of indicated that it wasn't a great car. So uh, we're getting to the point where Marty is offering, okay, I'm going to give you $700 if you like not to take that curtain. And the contestant is, I'm going to give that back. And he is, you know, that car of yours, it's probably not going to last. It's probably on its last legs. I'll be, when was the last <laughs> time you had to take it into repairs? I'll tell you what, I'll make it $200 because you're probably going to need $200 for that car to make some repairs here soon. And yeah. you see the contestant kind of go, oh, yeah. And now they're really thinking. And now it's a dilemma. I have this right. crappy car and I have nine hundred dollars in cash, which is going to cover the next thing that happens to it. But do yes. I want it to And it's Yeah, it's just that thing, just being aware of it and being able to use what is happening in your environment and being able to harness it to make suspense and make drama and to be able to do that in 
an audience where people are screaming and going crazy and to be, you know, the boss of the game with 32 people who just found out five minutes ago that they're going to be on television. So (laughs) they're a very, you know, a lot of this, it's funny as we get older, we kind of realize the younger generation needs to have it explained to them why this show is the way that it is. And the reason that people are acting like this, you know, there's, there was this era where if you wanted to be entertained at any given part of the day, you had three options Mm -hmm. and you were not going to shoot your own videos and upload them anywhere. So these people (laughs) are going to be on television in front of a larger audience than anybody among us now will ever be in front of in our lives. And they only found out a few seconds ago that they were going to do that, and they've been given no chance to prepare. So you're seeing people who are in a very alien environment who are not yes. ready for this at all, who yep. don't have any skill for it at all, trying to hold themselves together. And Monty kind of has to lead them around and lead mm-hmm. them around while also finagling these deals with them. Um, it's and a it's, very it's, delicate it's, act. No, it totally is. You're exactly right. And and what's amazing to me is this is not life changing money because right. some of the other shows, you know, even once it came along later, like who wants to be a millionaire? But even the twenty thousand dollar pyramid, you're giving people a significant amount of money that is life changing in some respect. They may not be able to retire the next day, but it will make their lives way more comfortable. Oh, yeah. And let's make a deal. These these deals are are very mundane in a lot of ways. Some of it is is life changing, but not, not it's 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 comfortable. You can get maybe a new kitchen set or whatever. But he is presenting these options where, like you mentioned with the car, here's a very mundane problem. You may have to repair your car, and I'll I'll take care of that. But if you want to risk it, you can risk something that's very important to you, and I'll give you this thing that may be worth three times what it is. And it's 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 very he puts him in very real mundane situations, which is why he could get away with having prizes that weren't as extravagant or as, it cost as much as the other game shows. Yeah, and I, it does uh, it makes life pretty good. Uh, and, and I'll even say this from my own experience: I won yeah. two thousand dollars on a game show in two thousand. Uh, 2008. Oh, and, congratulations. Oh, thank you. And, it, you know, to to that end, $2,000 doesn't sound like much in the era of who wants to be a millionaire. But mm-hmm. I look back on that and I still smile when I think about the day that I won $2,000 because it was $2,000 at a moment in my life when I really needed $2,000. So, right. yeah, you don't need it to be life changing amounts of money. Um, but also that kind of restraint was very smart of Monty because this was another thing he had touched on when the show was at its absolute peak. And companies are just giving you stuff uh, for free, no negotiation, just we'll give you this to put on the show as long as you show our logo on the screen. Uh, Some company offered a $40,000 yacht uh, and $40,000 in early 1970s money. They offered a $40,000 yacht. And Monty said no to the yacht because you're giving us one yacht, which means what are we going to do the next day? Like we, right. we can't we can't right. have people expecting a yacht every day on this show. So we have to say no <laughs> to something like that. Yeah. Right. No, and it, it's it, 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 he's put in a lot of dilemmas, but I think keeping the stakes low, but putting as much pressure on those stakes as possible is what made that's kind of the magic of the show. But the other thing that's really magical, I think, and what people remember this for were the costumes. I don't want to get too far ahead because the costumes are really interesting to me. Uh, and I just tried doing this on my other show, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos and Gear Based Technologies. I will do self promotions on this show as well. <laughs> and I started doing uh, one of the one of my um, one of the, the fans of the show was questioning my look. So I was like, OK, I'll start looking, having a bunch of different looks. So I, I've been dressed up in, in various different costumes uh, for the past couple weeks. It's been a lot of fun. 
And I think the evolution of the costume, like people, when people think of Let's Make a Deal, they think of everyone coming to the show in these wacky costumes. But there was a point early on where no one wore costumes. And the evolution of this, I thought was really interesting. Uh, so tell me, how did we go from normal, everyday, working class people in an audience to everyone dressing up uh, in, in bonkers outfits? Yeah, the pilot episode of Let's Make a Deal still exists. And if you watch it, you're seeing an audience of people who are dressed like they want to be on a game show. All the women are in their right. Sunday best. All the men are in gray suits. Yep. And what Let's Make a Deal became iconic for, as you said, was this audience full of Halloween costumes. And how did we get from point A to point B? Um, what began happening was and, and the reason that we can track this history so much so easily is because Monty was asked about this all the time in interviews. So he was always able to remember the story and how it evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, but what happened was one day Monty was wandering through the audience looking for the next contestant that he's going to pick to make a deal. And he sees this woman wearing a sign hanging around her neck. She has a sign on a chain and the mm-hmm. sign has a poem on it and says, roses are red, violets are blue. Uh, I came here to deal with you. And Monty was kind of tickled with that. So he picked her and said, yeah, stand up. I want to, you, drew the, you wrote this poem for me. I love that. And wrote this poem. Yeah. <laughs> Not Shakespeare, but yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. people who were planning on being in the audience in the near future caught on to that. So yep. very gradually over the next few weeks, you saw more and more people wearing signs hanging around their necks. And so Let's Make a Deal became the show where the contestants have signs hanging around their necks. Not, that, not unlike not unlike on on the Price is Right, where yeah. people wear T-shirts that say Bob Pick Me. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You're kind of seeing that now. Um, so that went for a few weeks. And then after a few weeks, this woman shows up wearing a really odd looking hat. And Marty does a double take when he looks at this hat and he says, oh, I'm, I'm going to pick you. Well, people picked up on that. So in the next few weeks, now you're seeing women wearing their Sunday best and men wearing gray suits with signs hanging around their necks and all wearing really ugly hats that don't go with their outfit. So let's make deal became the show with the ugly hats and the signs hanging around their necks. Right. And then finally the person that completely broke it and evolved it into what it became was an audience member showed up dressed as the Jolly Green Giant. A member, uh, mm-hmm. I asked one of the staffers who's uh, still with us, thankfully. I yeah. said, do you remember the first costume? And he says, yes, I'm positive that I remember this. A guy showed up dressed as the Jolly Green Giant. He was painted green from head to toe and wearing like the loincloth or whatever it's called that the Jolly Green yeah, yeah. Giant wears. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And he showed up for several tapings. And even with the people wearing signs hanging around their necks and the guys wearing the, and the people wearing the hats, the Jolly Green Giant seemed a little too weird to us, but he kept coming back for taping. So finally, we had Monty pick him just to get rid of him. We're like, OK, let's put him on the show just to get rid of him. But now we've had a guy wearing a costume on the show. So now Pandora's box has opened and now yeah. we have Draculas and ballerinas and football players coming to make a deal as a result of that. And yeah. there's no going back after that point. And have you ever have you ever tracked that guy down? I feel like you as a historian, don't you want to find that guy? I mean, he really I don't want to say changed game show history, <laughs> but he definitely influenced it way more powerfully. I would love to, but the problem is, I, and I, I let's make a deal like a lot of game shows did not preserve their daytime episodes for a long time. This is going to sound so strange, but it really is true up until 1980 or so. Uh, Mm -hmm. The standard operating procedure was you taped your game show, you aired it, and then to save storage space, you erased the tape and used it again for another game show taping because the thinking was – nobody anticipated that there would be an aftermarket for game show reruns. So a lot of game shows from that era got wiped, and also even if we don't have the videotape, 
I would wager that the contestant files, because they keep paperwork on every contestant who was on the show and what they did, I would wager that they didn't bother keeping a note of what the contestant was dressed like. So there would be (laughs) there would be no guideline to work with to figure out who the first contestant was to make history on Let's Make a Deal. So, yeah, there's this unsung hero or there was somewhere in the world who was the first person to show up dressed as the Jolly Green Giant and absolutely changed the face of a game show forever. Um, You might be able to find it, Adam. You might be able to, if you were to maybe find that episode, go through the, maybe, I I think someone might have put down Jolly Green Giant, but if they didn't, you can go through and you can start, you know, like if you have a big high school photograph and you just start crossing people (laughs) off from the list, if you really want to get to the bottom of this, if you are a true researcher and as passionate as I believe that you are, I think you can do this, man. (laughs) I challenge yeah. you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will certainly try, and we'll see if he'll donate the costume for the museum. Right. Yeah, you tied it back in. Well, yeah. here's, here's what's great. is um, This is another fun thing from the book, is anyone with a hockey jersey on got picked for deals. Yeah. And and anyone who wore, uh, any man who wore a, a baby <laughs> outfit where the big diaper was put uh, was completely ignored by Monty. Yeah. He hated that. And you know what, what was great was that was the big secret that got revealed to me. Karen LaPierre, who was the model in the mid-1980s. This was not a fun fact that was floating around anywhere until she said it to me, and I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) But she said Monty was very, very passionate about hockey, and the writers knew that about Monty. And it was important for Monty to have some kind of jumping-off point to build a relationship with these people that he was going to make deals with because that was was the key thing, was Monty, in the span of 30 seconds, would form a friendship with this person, and then the suspense of the deal would be, oh, man, is my new friend Monty trying to steer me the wrong way? I, I don't know. I think I can trust my friend Monty, can't I? So whenever anybody showed up wearing a hockey jersey, everybody on the writing staff who was in charge of picking the people who would go on the trading floor, everybody zeroed in on that guy and made a note, hockey jersey, pick this guy. And so, yes, if you wore a hockey jersey to Let's Make a Deal when Monty Hall was the host, you were going to get to make a deal. You were going to get a chance to win a prize on that show. Wow. Everybody who wore a hockey jersey got a shot at it. That's great. And no one knew. That's yeah. what's so cool about it. You said no no one knew about it. Yeah. And I don't yeah, think anyone knew that he hated he hated men dressed as babies. Yeah, on that the other was hand, also- the men wearing diapers. And the thing is, the staff loved that. This was something where they couldn't get Monty on their side. The staff loved it because it takes a lot of self-confidence to do that. And this was one of the things yeah. the critics would bristle and say, I cannot believe people do that. Oh, yeah. I can't believe people. But there's a lot of self-confidence involved in being willing to put on a diaper to go on national television. But people would show up dressed as babies for let's make a deal and monty would just look at that and i think monty just looked at that and thought to himself you know i defend this show to the press i don't know that i can defend that i think that's what he was thinking so p men yeah. in diapers did not get picked for let's make a deal but they kept coming year after year so you'd see them in the audience but they would never get picked for anything <laughs> I, I love that it's great well so this is i mean this is an interesting point in let's make a deal history right because you're talking about the connection between monty and the audience and i think what made him so special is his ability to really do all of the things that were required. You know, we didn't touch on the fact that Monty was very sick as a young kid and learned arithmetic while almost dying of double pneumonia. Yeah. And then when he was on the show, I mean, I watched him on a couple episodes, just able to rattle off. I mean, people nowadays can't make change without punching <laughs> into a computer. And he was rattling off these these addition, subtraction, just boom, boom, boom. He had this very unique skill set that made him perfect for this show. And it, the show was perfect for his particular skill set. Yeah. And that's what makes it so interesting is that 
that he was still unhappy with all of this. And I think it's because he truly believed he could do more. Um, but, you know, he finds out that this is actually the perfect place for him. Yeah, I think every performer naturally wants to try something else or prove that they have more to offer. Um, and Monty certainly got shots at it. He would uh, he would occasionally get a chance to you know, do a primetime variety special for ABC because he managed to get that deal in writing every now and then. Um, But the thing about let's make a deal and a a few of his staffers mused on this was Monty didn't get that he was his own secret weapon because you were just touching on the arithmetic skills, which came in handy during a lot of the deals. And you just you cannot find a host who can do that off the top of their head most of the time. And I don't say that to denigrate any of the hosts that I've worked with or any of the other game show hosts who have gone on to become icons, but just doing this addition and subtraction in his head involving dollars and cents in deals where it mattered and you actually had to be able to do that very, very quickly to figure out if the contestant had won or lost, Um, just little skills like that. Monty really did tailor the show to his own strengths because he was the boss and the host like we touched on. Uh, And that was, I think, part of what made him inseparable from the show because when Monty attempted to quit and attempted to recast it with another host, people didn't right. want it because, you know, it felt like another host doing Monty's show. Now we have right. Wayne Brady doing this show, which has quietly become an institution on CBS. It's mm-hmm. it's been on the air. It's easy to forget how long Wayne Brady has been doing. Let's make a deal now. He's been doing it I for know. about 15 years now. And. When you look at Let's Make a Deal, it's enough like Monty's show that you can draw a line from point A to point B and say, yes, Wayne Brady is hosting Let's Make a Deal. This is the show that Monty hosted. But what they've done now is they've tailored it to Wayne Brady's strength. They're doing it Mm -hmm. in a way that it works for Wayne Brady. And his own children said, you know, that's kind of a brilliant thing to do because dad did not recognize that he had built the show for himself. Right. So you can't just plug another host into a show that you made for yourself and your own image for your (laughs) own skills, for your own talent. So, yeah, Yeah. they've reinvented it in accordance with the person who's hosting it. And that's a smart way to go about it. And if Wayne Brady ever leaves the show and they bring in another host, there's probably going to be another round of reinventions. And you're going to see Wayne, you're going to see let's make a deal done in the style of that host suiting whatever skills that they bring to it. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about let's make a deal is it is so particular and they do have different skill sets, but you know, in a lot of ways, and I don't mean this to disparage game show hosts in general, Mm -hmm. but a lot of them have one or two skills, which are to be in front of an audience to look good and be in front of an audience and to read a script, right? I just got into Survivor. I I got my finger right on the pulse. We're talking about a (laughs) 50-year-old show. I just got into a 20-year-old show. I just did a uh, a podcast on a 40-year-old movie. So I've got my finger on the pulse of yesteryear. Let's just say that, Adam. Uh, But, you know, I watched Jeff Probst, and he kind of says the same things over and over. He's fine. He's in there. He's likable, right? But I don't know that I think you could fit a lot of people into that skill set. When I look at Monty Hall, he was perfect for Let's Make a Deal. And Wayne Brady, I think, doesn't fit in the mold of a typical game show host because he is unbelievably talented. You know, I mean, I would watch him on, you know, on um, uh, Whose Line Is It? And I mean, just these improv guys where they can do so much. He is so unbelievably skilled that you kind of have to make a new show for him. But that's not a bad thing because guys like him hosting game shows don't come around very often. Right. I mean, like, look at Drew Carey on The Price is Right. Drew Carey, same thing. He was on he was hosting. Whose line is it? But I would say that his skills are not used at all. He's his his. They're not utilized in any way, shape or form that Wayne Brady's are on Let's Make a Deal. 
Yeah, I, it, it's really great with conversation when he can engage with a contestant. Um, yeah. Very quick on his feet. Uh, so that works for The Price is Right, where there is a lot of there is a lot of game to cram into an episode of The Price is Right, even especially right. in this era of more and more commercials. Um, yeah, Let's Make a Deal is is and was a very unique animal and it required a very special host. Um, during one of the periods where Monty was trying to stop hosting it and wanted to recast it, uh, Dick Clark basically cold called him and said, I'll host. And mm -hmm. so Monty said, you know, uh, sure, because uh, I'm not going to do it. I'm done. And he went ahead and sent Dick 10 videotapes of episodes to study. Mm -hmm. And basically, Dick knew let's make a deal. But Dick being a businessman, in addition to being a host, I don't think Dick had even right. really made himself familiar with the show. And <laughs> Dick watches 10 episodes of Let's Make a Deal hosted by Monty Hall and just calls Monty and said, I've actually changed my mind. I can't do this. <laughs> right. um, yeah, I'm not, because yeah, it you know it, it is uh, every game show requires something different. And it, especially in the case of Let's Make a Deal. And you were talking about scripts earlier. Um, one of the neat things that I've been able to see now that I'm involved in this museum is actual scripts for Let's Make a Deal. Now, this is going to be something where I have to pause here and explain something to people who don't work in the game show world, because people are going to think well, game shows have scripts. Yes, game shows have scripts. And here's how I mean they have scripts. If it's a show like Family Feud, where the game is the same in and out, they have a thing called a shell script, which is one script with a lot of blank spaces in it. And it's basically a script that accommodates every episode that you will ever tape of that show. So mm. host reads question one, contestant A answers. If correct, <laughs> yeah, yeah. host says B. If incorrect, host says C. And the script is it's laid like out a generic choose your own adventure in some yeah, ways. It, yeah, that's yeah. a great way of putting it. And that's yeah. how I'll phrase it from now on, because you did it more articulately than me. So um, <laughs> one of the few things. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing. So that's that's most scripts in the case of Let's Make a Deal, where they had 50 or 60 rotating deals that they would change up every now from one show to another and where they would actually change up how each deal went and mm -hmm. change different elements of the deal every time they played them. You actually did need an individual script for each one. And the scripts for Let's Make a Deal are really written almost in the form of flow charts. So. Mm -hmm. Here's the script for if contestant picks box. Here's the script for if contestant picks curtain. And you see different outcomes of the deal being uh, <laughs> in front of you on these on these scripts. And it really is amazing um, yeah. because they tried to limit the amount of cue card usage. There weren't zero cue cards on the set. But right. there was not a typical amount because they didn't want contestants to look over Monty's shoulder and see, oh, there's going to be a refrigerator revealed here soon. They didn't mm -hmm. want that. So Monty had to come on stage knowing exactly where each of these deals was going to go, but also knowing the variations that each deal could possibly take if A happens or if B happens or if J happens. Right. Um, and so that's, again, just the extraordinary level of detail and effort that had to go into hosting this show. Um, I think I I don't think it's a big secret that game shows tape multiple episodes in a day and many game shows tape five now in a day. Some even tape six. Wheel of Fortune does six in a day and some of the shows that I've worked on tape six in a day um, with uh, Let's Make a Deal. The one limitation that Monty put on the show was they never did more than three in a day. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. most of the time they only did two because that's just too much stuff for one man to go in to go into a taping with. That's too many things to keep track of for three episodes right. worth of content. Uh, so they had to limit the production that way. Um, but there's just there was an extraordinary amount of preparation that went into each shows. And Monty was always ready for that. 
That's insane. Well, I, I meant you, you, you were talking about the, the flow charts, and there's this great show on HBO called The Rehearsal uh, by Nathan Fielder. And he's basically, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, but it's not a game show, it's, it, but he's trying to create He's putting people through rehearsals to do some difficult thing in their life. So he brings them into a perfectly replicated set of wherever they're going to meet and goes through every possible incarnation of what could happen where. And you see this these detailed flow charts. If I say this, then this happens. And it is the it's almost like when you look at a video game. All the uh, the speech tech, the, you know, the speech tree where, you know, if you're talking to a, a character in a video game, they say this and you get choices. It's super complex. Yeah. And, you know, to do that, as you mentioned, three shows in a day to know all of the different outcomes. That's pretty intense. Uh, but this is, you know, w- what I want to say here is this is an interesting show. Monty Hall was a very complex guy. And I think that not only does the first part of this book, but also your addition, it really creates this conflict that he had with being good at something that he kind of didn't want to do forever. Yeah. But he had a really hard time embracing that that's that was his niche and he kind of should have leaned into it instead of pulling away from it. But that represents the conflict that I think everybody has, which while you mentioned the kids weren't happy with the way the book came out, I found it fascinating. I had to read the first part of the book to get to your part of the book. And I was like, oh, my God, 500 pages. I was like, ah, curses at home. <laughs> uh, but then I got through it. and I was like, this is uh, this is great because you really see the conflict and he becomes a real person that you then show the aftermath of that from. I mean, seamlessly, Adam, which I think is just the most impressive part of this book, is you seamlessly connect the two uh, and the bridge. There's so much going on in this book that I I was really impressed uh, with not only your writing of it, but his story. You really brought it to life. And it's way more complex. So people listening... Pick this up. I mean, you're, this is this is a guy who represents an era you may not have heard of, but game shows were incredibly popular. This is a show that was beating prime time. You know, the, it was a number one show forever. And as you mentioned, more people were watching this show than watching anything else in history. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a big deal. So you did a great job. So how can people find this book? I mean, I'm I'm talking you up here, but they got to get a hold of this. How can people do that? Uh, the book is available on uh, BearManorMedia.com. That's the name of my publisher, Bear Manor Media. B e A-R, Manor, M-A-N-O-R, media.com. So you can buy it straight from publisher. You can also find it on Amazon.com and and BarnesandNoble.com. And how do people find you? Social media? Where where are you? (laughs) Uh, People find me by going to Facebook and doing a search for game show author Adam Needif. My last name is spelled N-E-D-E-F-F, if they didn't see the summary of this episode. Um, But uh, I post there every now and then with uh, little relics from my collection, photos that I found or videos that I found. uh, And it's just a fun little way for me to share my interest and my passion with other fans. And of course, you can find this show, FascinatingNouns.com. You can find us on Twitter, FascinatingNoun, on Facebook, at FascinatingNouns. That's the place where you can get us. I think that's a great place to find you. I, I follow you there. And, you know, I notice that you and I have several overlapping friends from different geological areas. We're actually going to do a 10 minute episode, a little bonus episode on new game shows and our strange connections. If that isn't one heck of a teaser. <laughs> uh, but but I want to thank you so much. It's a great book. People should pick it up. Uh, I want to thank you for writing this. Uh, Monty Hall's family thanks you. Uh, it's called Monty Hall TV's Big Dealer. Grab it wherever you can. I'll have links to it everywhere. Uh, but Adam, thank you for taking so much time out for me today. Uh, this has been just just a, a great time. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. 
Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.